The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Galatians 4, 8 through 11. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Praise to Christ. Thank you, Mary. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you all here this morning. Uh, my name is Russ Ramsey. And if we haven't met yet, I'm the pastor here at Christ Presbyterian Church's Cool Springs location. And uh, this morning I've been preaching at, I preached at the Old Hickory location as well, and so I just got here, and then once I'm done I'm going to go back, and we're going to do one more service over there, Um, but uh, it's good to be here this morning, I love this room, I've seen all these faces, people, you guys are great, wonderful. All right, I'm going to jump right into this, sorry, it's like, it's like I've been away for a year, I've missed you so much, and I've missed, (laughs) I wasn't here for 20 minutes, Okay. (laughs) <laughs> well, the working title, so the sermon title on your bulletin is Being Known by God. My working title for this message as I've been preparing it has been How to Turn Christianity into a New Kind of Paganism in Two Easy Steps. <laughs> so that's what we're going to be talking about because that's really what this text is about um, that we read. So let me set it up a little bit and then I'll tell you a story. Um, In the verses right before this passage, Paul has been talking to Gentile converts, remember, and and he's been talking to them about their standing before God. And it's been unbelievably good news that he's been giving them because what he's told them is this. He says, though you didn't come from a Jewish background, you're so loved and you're so included that you are to God adopted as his sons. And therefore, you're full heirs, full heirs to his kingdom. And in today's passage, he is still talking to them. So, he's still, so this is just right on the heels of you're no longer slaves but sons. We're coming right into this. And he's still talking to them. And what he's urging them to do is he's, saying, he's urging them not to return to the weak and worthless principles of the world. If they do, he says, he fears that he may have labored in vain. And we may hear that and say he's urging them, don't return to your former paganism. But in the context, that's not what he's saying. When you look at the context, you understand that he's saying something else, and that's the point that I want to focus on. Today's text is not a warning against abandoning Christ and Christianity and returning to their former paganism. Instead, it's a warning against turning Christianity into a new paganism. How does one do this? These are the two points that I have for my sermon. Point one is going to be, how does one turn Christianity into a new kind of paganism? And point two will be, what does God want instead? And we'll use worship, connect, and serve, these three kind of pillars of our vision to talk about that. So first, I'll I'll tell you a story. This is a true story. It's also a parable. 
okay? I was not, growing up, one of the popular kids in school. Um, and I wasn't unpopular either. I was right in the middle, just right there in the middle. And so in the social economy of middle school, I was nothing special. I was a B average student. Sometimes I'd get an A, sometimes I'd get a C. Most of the time I got a B. When other kids, we didn't have a lot of money growing up, and so when other kids were wearing guest jeans with the little triangle thing sewn right into the side, you know what I'm talking about? I was wearing Levi's or Lee's. <clears throat> when they would come to school wearing Air Jordans, I would be wearing Reebok high tops, which weren't bad, but they weren't Jordans. When they were wearing black parachute pants, I was wearing gray parachute pants because gray was the color that made it to the clearance rack. So I wasn't an insider. I wasn't technically an outsider either. I was solidly in the middle. I was a middle-class, middle-school kid with middle-of-the-road grades living in the middle of the Midwest. Can you relate to that? Just whew. If, if that is flyover country, I was a flyover person. Somewhere around eighth grade, I decided that I was going to learn to play guitar. And I was as certain as a boy could be that in the act of doing that, I would shoot right past the cool kids into a stratosphere of cool few my age ever attained. And so my parents bought me a black Westone electric guitar, I'm going to get technical on you, with a Floyd Rose floating tremolo system, a beefy humbucker at the bridge, and two single coils by the neck. And this thing was, whew, it was awesome. I was looking through some photos the other day, and I found an old picture of the guitar. <laughs> That's it. Check it out. Isn't it awesome? That's it. That's the guitar. A curious thing, it's gone, right? Okay. <laughs> A curious thing happened to me as I began to learn that instrument, and that is this. I fell head over heels in love with it. I just fell in love with it. It, it, was, it was like it turned a lock inside my heart and it opened something. And I would lose myself in hours of just pure joy, walking in these little circles in my bedroom playing guitar as the, as the cord just coiled around my feet. And I would just learn the guitar solos and the parts of these guitar heroes that I was imitating, and, 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 and I totally forgot that I originally wanted this thing as a way to leverage my position in life. And instead, I just loved my guitar. I just loved playing my guitar. I felt strangely complete. I wish that I could convey to you the purity of the joy I felt, but I imagine you have something in your life like that. You have something in your life where your love for the thing itself is pure and it's enough, right? One day, there was another kid at school who also played guitar. There weren't many of us, but he said to me, hey, why don't we bring our guitars to school and we can set up kind of on the side of the stage and we can play during lunch together. That'd be fun. 
And I was like, yeah. So we did that. We brought our guitars and our amps to school and we set them up there on the side of the stage in the gym. And two things happened as we began to play. First thing, a crowd formed. I don't need to explain that. Guitar solos are awesome. <laughs> Second, it became apparent to me and to everybody else there that the other kid was a hundred times better than I was. And his equipment, his guitar, his amp, a hundred times better than mine. And without warning, I suddenly felt small and invisible and unknown. And I looked down at my guitar, the one I showed you, and I felt that it was inferior. And, I f and when it was my turn to play, I felt that my playing was going to confirm for all of us that I remained nothing special. And just like that, I was back where I started. In a moment, without warning, this thing that had been this source of undefiled joy in my life, playing my guitar, had become a conduit for feelings of inferiority, even anger. And suddenly, the prestige that that guitar could afford me in the eyes of others eclipsed the joy I experienced when my delight was in engaging with the thing itself. True story parable, right? The thing I once loved and delighted in became a way for me to get stuff. And I exchanged the love of the thing itself for a desire for that thing to give me a certain kind of value and standing among my peers. And this is a picture of how it is possible to turn Christianity into a new kind of paganism. It's taking a relationship built on pure joy in the object itself, taking a relationship built on being fully known and fully loved, and turning it into something of a more transactional nature. Now, I'm using the word paganism. I should define it, because we may be saying, I, I don't know, I thought that word meant... Paganism was, was worshiping statues and performing strange ceremonies in exchange for prosperity now and good outcomes in the afterlife. And to that I would say that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. These are the two rules for how to turn Christianity into a new kind of paganism. Rule number one, turn God into an impersonal being who exists to give you stuff. Step two, turn your worship into ceremony that is intended to get you stuff. That's how you turn Christianity into a new kind of paganism. That's what paganism is. The God is lacking personality or interest in the objects who worship him and the people who worship do so in order to obtain. 
And Paul's telling these Gentile converts, listen, before you knew about God, before you knew about the one true God, you served these lifeless idols, these, these gods, you felt enslaved to them for things like good fortune and fertility. And so you made sacrifices to them and you paid money to them and you performed empty rituals for hollow gods who never knew your name. But now you're known. You're known by the one true God. You're loved. You're adopted into his family as full heirs. And the temptation, Paul is saying, that you're being faced with right now is to treat that God as though what he wants most from you is to bring your ritualistic ways of the world, your former ways of paganism, to bring that into your new faith in Christ. And so Paul says this, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? See, here's the thing about the Gentiles is this idea of making religion into a transactional relationship was not a new concept to them. It was all they knew. It was their, when it comes to their worship, it was their native tongue. Here's the kicker. Since the fall of man, it's all our native tongue when it comes to worship. Is our default is to say, I worship to get the cosmos or the God of the cosmos to smile upon me and give me good fortune. It's the default of a fallen world. And we see it. We see it in the passage. We see it in what's been going on in the book of Galatians up to this point. We see it in what the false teachers have been telling the Jew and Gentile convert alike. So far, what have they said? They've insisted that these Gentile converts do what? Practice circumcision, keep kosher, remain separate from the Jews, and now Paul is saying that these false teachers are commanding observance of feasts and holy days. And they're doing this too. And so it's really just the same song, different verse on the whole circumcision discussion. Right? Now I have to parenthetically say this because I don't want us to be confused about something. And that is, when it comes to keeping Sabbath, Sabbath keeping does not fall into this category of empty religious ceremony. Sabbath rest was instituted by God before the fall. It's commanded in the Ten Commandments and it's vital for our well-being as people made in God's image. But look at what these false teachers are saying. These Gentiles have been given this list. The things they're told are needed for faith. Circumcision, classism, diet, feasts, And what do those things imply? They imply that these are for a God who requires such things from his subjects in order to be pleased. Well, that is just like paganism. That's what that is. This God is impersonal. He has no more life than a statue. And what does he want? Ceremony. He makes demands, they are to satisfy them. In exchange for what? Well, in exchange for good standing in the eyes of others, in exchange for good fortune, in exchange for life not to be so hard, right? How many of us (coughs) have engaged in some kind of 
spiritual discipline or exercise or act because we wanted God to make life not as hard as it was. So I'm going to do this, or I'm going to promise you this, or I'm going to not commit this particular sin on this particular day because this day is more important to you than the other days where I do this all the time. How many of us have done that, right? We understand this. We, 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 we do this. And so I, want, I have to ask. We need to examine our lives. What do you think God wants from you? That's the question. What do you think God wants from you? Is your faith merely transactional? Is your worship basically a form of paying for goods and services? Because listen, the affluence that we live in, in our area of the world, it's everywhere. The way we're, we present is such a put together city. The occasions that come our way every minute of every day to compare ourselves to others, to measure our worth, those things abound. They're everywhere. And we are kidding ourselves if we think that these things don't influence us. We are seeping in our culture. We're steeping in it. It's so easy to twist Christianity into a thing that we can just lay over the pursuit of personal gain. And we can look at God as someone who is little more than a being that exists to get, to get things from. When we do this, here's what we become. We become the kid sitting on the side of the stage with the object of his delight in his grasp, looking at it as though it has somehow let him down because it didn't give him the respect of others that he didn't realize but then discovered he so desperately wanted and needed. Can you relate? I mean, you can relate if you've ever said to God, you let me down. What does God want instead? So that's how you turn Christianity into a new kind of paganism. You turn God into a lifeless, impersonal being who exists to give stuff, and you turn worship into ceremony that exists to get stuff. What does God want instead? The answer is found in the difference between being known and not being known. In a pagan system, the God is unknowable, and therefore his worshipers are unknown to him. And in that system, the only benefit left in worship is transaction. I do this to get that. And so when this is what we're doing, this is when we're just heaving the carcass of our sacrifice onto the altar, lighting it on fire, and hoping for prosperity and good health, when in reality our worship moves us about as much as a trip to the DMV. Y'all have been to the DMV? Some of you haven't. You're going to at some point. It's awesome. Not really. But you get the picture, right? This is not what Christianity is. In Christ, we are known, we're loved. How loved? We're adopted as full heirs into his eternal kingdom. In other words, what God wants from you is you. What God wants from us is us. God's call on the lives of his people is to himself. 
What God wants is for our delight to be in him and for that to be enough. As Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. But when our hearts rest in being fully known and fully loved and fully accepted, what flows from that? What flows from that kind of life? This is where I want to look at how it affects our worship, how it affects our connection to one another, how it affects our service. Our worship becomes a way of cultivating intimacy. It's not a transaction. It's a way of cultivating intimacy. We don't spend time with Jesus like I used to spend time with my parents when I was a teenager because I was hoping for gas money. But we spend time with him because he is our true delight. He's enough. And when that is what's defining our worship, guess what? This kind of worship turns our hearts outward. Rather than focusing on all the things that we feel that we lack, we recognize in the grand scheme of things, I actually lack nothing. I lack nothing. And I'm known and I'm loved and I'm adopted as a son, as an heir into the kingdom of God forever. And so my worship and my prayer life can come from a position of strength in that. And I can delight. When our hearts rest in being fully known, fully loved, and fully accepted, how does it affect our connection, our relationship? Well, our relationships with other believers can now include things like transparency and vulnerability. We don't look at our brothers and sisters in Christ as people to impress anymore. And we don't look at them as people to put in the penalty box until they prove to us they don't necessarily belong there. But we see people as people to serve and to be helped by. Because I don't need to impress anybody. As I am known and loved by Christ, I can seek to be known and loved by others just as I can seek to know and love them. And so instead of seeing people as burdens or cautions, we can say of one another, as King David said, of his friends in Psalm 16, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. The, 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 I love that verse in Psalm 16, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, because here's how I read it. You have somebody in your life, you have people in your life that when they walk in the room, you look at them and you think, I love that guy, or I love her, she's awesome. I wish everybody knew that person. That's what David's saying in this verse. As for the saints in the land, they're the best. I love these people. I love these friends. They're great. That's what our relationships become when I'm not trying to protect transparency, vulnerability. Our service to others, when our hearts rest in being fully known, fully loved, fully accepted by God, our service, what flows out of that is we serve from a position of strength and provision. We can look at our work not as a means to make our mark, improve our worth, but as a means to serve others with excellence. If I believe that I have everything I need, then I can pour myself out without fear of coming up empty. I can delight. I can delight in serving. The weak and worthless principle of the world that Paul's talking about in this passage is in a nutshell this. It's you have no inherent value. 
And so it is your job to create it. Your worth is yours to make. And that could not be further from the truth. In Christ, we are fully known. We're fully loved. We're fully accepted by God. Freedom and joy are found here. And so we're set free from transactional, empty religion. We're set free to delight in the maker and sustainer of the universe who made us in his image, who knows our names, who's prepared a place for us for all eternity. This is something when I pray for our congregation, which includes praying for myself, and I'm praying for the Lord's sanctifying work over time. This is one of the things I pray about. I say, Lord, help us to, to really rest in you being enough for us and then for us to love and serve and worship from that position of strength because we'll do things that we wouldn't otherwise risk. Knowing we're known by God, that's the antidote to treating God like an idol. And we're known in such a way that he's called us. He's called us his own children, heirs with Christ to his eternal kingdom and we lack for nothing in eternity, which means we can be sure that we're completely loved and accepted now. And my prayer for us is that we would live out of the joy of this freedom. Let me pray. Lord, you are faithful to your people. You shape us, you grow our faith, you mature us, you bring things into our lives that test us. And Father, we confess that we are all works in progress In a manner of speaking, in another manner of speaking, theologically, our doctrine tells us that we are completely loved and known and accepted by you. And nothing can break that. And so thank you for that, Lord. Uh, Help us to rest in that. Help us to grow in that. Help us to love and worship you from that position of strength. Help us to connect with other people and foster our relationships and tend to our friendships in the body of Christ from that position of strength. Help us to serve our church and our city and our world from that position of strength as people who know that we have all we need and that you are enough. And let us move in the joy and freedom of that. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.